1: Hey, man, I know it's 4 o'clock Eastern. That means it's National Football Showtime. Hope all are having a great day. We are just absolutely packed once again. So many legendary people will be stepping on the show today, and we'll be talking boxing, Olympics, protesting, NCAA, and we'll be hitting a little bit up on the Denver Broncos. We're going to be talking in this hour to the legendary two-time heavyweight champion and gold medalist, George Foreman, the greatest knockout artist in the history of the heavyweight division. We'll ask him about protesting. He was involved in the greatest protest in the history of the Olympic Games in the 68 Games in Mexico City. We're starting to see a little bit of that now at the U.S. trials to go to the Olympics this summer in Tokyo. We'll ask George what he thinks of it. He was centered around it. Don't you remember the greatest picture in Olympic history with Big George with the Olympic flag walking around the ring after he had won the gold medal? We'll get his thoughts on how he sees the protesting, plus the heavyweight division, which is in shambles today. So what we will do, we will talk to the heavyweight champion. Then at the top of the 5 o'clock hour, we'll catch up with our friend Tony Casillas. We'll ask him about athletes being paid in college. And get his perspective on that. Tony, of course, has the distinction of winning a national championship at Oklahoma and is a two-time Super Bowl champion with the Dallas Cowboys. Then we're going to catch up with our friend Carl Mecklenburg, who deals with the Denver Broncos. He is a six-time Pro Bowler with those Broncos. He's part of the broadcast team for the Broncos. What are they going to do in the AFC West this year? It's like a headless horseman there with the Broncos. They've got all the components around. That football team, they just don't have a quarterback. Is Drew Locke the guy? Is Teddy Bridgewater the dude? They just brought him in from Carolina. How is that going? We will talk with our friend Carl Mecklenburg. That will be at 5:30 Eastern time. So let me start this thing out here. And we're kind of gonna go around a little bit because I've been watching all sports. Before we get into football, I'm gonna make some comparisons here. So last night I'm watching the First two games, or actually the first game, the first two games are going to be on NBC Sports Network. And I'm talking the Stanley Cup Finals. And my first notion was, oh, wait a minute now. You have your marquee event, the Stanley Cup Finals, on a cable access channel that nobody gives a you-know-what about. Dude, do you know what they bumped them for? on the main network, NBC, America Ninja Warrior. What I'm going to do here is make the comparison to the NFL. Can you imagine knocking the Super Bowl off of network television for American Ninja Warrior? Dude, there lies the difference between the NHL and the NFL. It is the moon and the sun, man. NBC doesn't even give a you-know-what about the NHL Stanley Cup Finals. Holy cow. I mean, the Food Network, True TV have a bigger audience than that cable access. Wayne's World, you know, the Aurora cable outlet probably has a better audience than the NBC Sports Network. What a travesty. Gary Bettman should be fired. That's what you're putting your marquee event on. You're putting your marquee event on cable access. I thought about that last night. I go, could you imagine ever having the NFL get bumped for American Ninja Warrior? I'm surprised that didn't get bumped for keeping up with the Kardashians. And I love the NHL. I watched the game last night. I watched Tampa take apart the Canadians last night. It looks like the... Tampa Bay Lightning are going to go back-to-back and winning their third Stanley Cup championship. But uh, you're, you're watching it, and you're like, man, the NFL is just superior in every way, especially financially. You're watching all access. Your Stanley Cup finals, your championship round is on, like, where they put Wayne's World. Man, do you have a long way to go? The NHL, man, is so far behind. I mean, honestly, MLS and NHL. MLS, I don't even know when the season is. I have never watched an MLS uh, soccer event. Never. I don't even know when they play. I think they play like around now or something like that. I don't even know the names of the teams. I think, what, the LA Galaxy? I I think I know one team. Soccer in America. Yeah, okay. Let me get off that because it's a non-factor. Now we get to another story here. And this, you know, this kind of, collides with what we've been talking about pretty much all summer, and that is how Aaron Rodgers is maybe not the greatest teammate. Let me give you another example of a horrible teammate. And this is Scottie Pippen. So Scottie Pippen now is in full sell mode because he's got to sell a new book that's coming out. And basically what this new autobiography with Scottie Pippen is going to do, it's going to be kind of like the angry guy, and it's going to be kind of like a get-back book because of the last dance and the documentary that Jordan put out last year. You know, that documentary uh, was in the eyes of Michael Jordan, and it really didn't make Scottie Pippen look all that good in that series. However, even though throughout that whole documentary, Michael Jordan said this is not possible without Scottie Pippen. Still, Scottie Pippen didn't like the fact that Scottie Pippen was made to look like, well, a whiner, um, a guy who wasn't a good teammate. And now, quite frankly, his actions the last two days are showing you what a bad teammate is. I'm not suggesting to you that Aaron Rodgers is a bad teammate, but I want to make some connections here. And using this comparison here with Pippin and what he's doing, think about this for a second. And I don't think Aaron's this bad. Pippin is selling a book. And ending relationships so he can sell a book. I mean, would you do that to sell a book, end a relationship that you guys went through one of the greatest journeys of all time? That Chicago Bulls team with Jordan and Pippen and Rodman, that's one of my favorite sports teams. I saw those guys up close and personal. I saw those guys against the Warriors back in the day when I was doing radio at KNBR in San Francisco. And the Warriors back then just stunk out loud under P.J. Carlissimo. And I'm watching those guys. This was, I think, the 70-win season. And I'm watching these guys just go through and how it didn't matter what the score was. It didn't matter what the hell. every, It didn't matter. They were going to go out and win. Just didn't matter. and. Jordan would scream at P.J. Carlissimo, what are you hollering at, guy? What are you hollering at? So that whole journey with that team, I just love that basketball team. So now Pippen's calling Phil Jackson a racist. And get this, here's here's his reasoning. Because Phil drew up a play for Tony Kukoc in a critical game That was a game-winning shot. Oh, and this just in. Kukoc made it. Kukoc made the shot. And Pippin's still pissed. Here's the wide receiver in the NFL that when you ask the wide receiver in the NFL if he had a good game, no matter if he wins or loses like Odell Beckham Jr., here, watch this. Here's Beckham's call. Well, you know, we won, but I only had two catches. And four targets, and I had 60 yards. Not really a great game. Yeah, but you won. Yeah, I know, but I really, I really didn't put up good numbers. It's not about that, man. It's about winning games. Pippin's butt hurt over the fact that Phil drew up a play. And Scotty put a racial tag on it. Here's a guy right here that's crying wolf. And here's a guy that hurts racism when there's true racism in the world and just throwing it out to race bait. Scottie Pippen is a race baiter. Then he turns around and says, well, you know, you know, yeah, I'm okay with it. He said it on a Dan Patrick show that he, you know, he's okay with Phil being called a racist. You see, back in that time when the NBA was going through the acclamation of bringing in more European players, There was a sense amongst the African-American players that were in the NBA at the time that the league wanted to get more white players because, get this, college basketball wasn't producing them in the States, so they were going overseas to bring more white players in. Now, if you're coming from that perspective, okay, you know, if you're sitting on the other side and you're an African-American and you see that and you see what the NBA is doing, you might have that perspective. So for white guys to say that's not—I mean, you you don't walk in those shoes. But Michael Jordan quit the NBA because remember what they did in Chicago, Reinsdorf and Krause—they fired Phil. They weren't going to bring Phil back. And Jordan said, "If you fire my coach, I'm out." Also, Jordan left the game for three years. Left the game for three years for Phil. You think Michael Jordan? who's got the biggest... Br- we all agree, right? When it comes to sports athletes in American sports history, Michael Jordan's got the biggest brand in the history of American sports. Do we not agree with that? You think he's really going to support a racist? So again, you've got to put everything in context here. Scottie Pippen is pimping a book. It's all he's doing here. And so what you're going to do is you're going to lie a little bit to sell the book. But would you really put your entire friendship on the line that somebody has said it publicly that they would have never been in a position to win those championships if it wasn't for Pippen being on those teams with him. You know, I think what happened here was is that Scottie Pippen really saw that he was dubbed the Robin, and he didn't like it. You know, I always say this to people. You think Gronk minds being Gronk and being Robin on a Tom Brady Patriots team? Do you think Julian Edelman minded being on a Patriots team with Tom Brady and winning all those championships? How about Jerry Rice? You want to go there? You think Jerry Rice minded being on those Montana and Young teams, knowing that he was the second fiddle and those quarterbacks were the guys? I mean, he was a Robin too. Go down the list of some of the greatest Robins. Do you have a problem? Who would have a problem being considered one of the 20 greatest players of all time? And I'm talking Pippen winning six championships and having that distinction and having the GOAT even say, I never would have been here without him. Go back and watch Michael Jordan's induction speech into the Basketball Hall of Fame. He said, none of this is possible without Scottie Pippen. It's just not. But what ended up happening in that last dance, Pippen was made to look like a fool with all his, his ways and the way that he was negotiating his contract. If you remember right, Scotty had a surgery during the season, which he could have had in the offseason, and it was because of the contract that he had a problem with. So he decided to have it during the year, which meant he missed half the season. And Jordan just ripped him for that in that documentary, Last Dance. Pippen didn't like it. There is a part of me now that also sides with Pippen here. Follow me here. You know that line that says, what's said in the locker room stays in the locker room? Well, that Last Dance documentary, you know what it did? It kind of pulled the curtain back a little bit on what was going on truly inside the locker room with the ownership group, with Jerry Reinsdorf, with general manager who Jordan despised and Jerry Krause. And and it saw the heartache that they had to deal with, with Dennis Rodman taking time off to go and go to Vegas. So Scottie Pippen was, in the past, always protecting that what's in the locker room stays in the locker room. Last year, kind of Jordan violated that in a way. So Scottie Pippen probably came out and said this. Why am I protecting this? Jordan's a selfish dude, man. Nobody had a heads up that he was going to retire and and leave the game. Nobody, Nobody had a notion. Now, nobody would have begrudged Michael Jordan. His father was murdered. There was a lot of things going on in Jordan's life. Remember the gambling, Atlantic City, New York, and all that? You know, there's even a notion that Jordan had to go away for two years because David Stern, the then commissioner of the NBA, had to do something to suspend him. You know, that's never been proven. I heard Skip Bayless say that this morning, and I'm like, wow, that's pretty that's pretty ballsy to say that, that you really think that Jordan was kicked out of the game for that gambling that night in Eastern Conference Finals. And gambling was prohibited back then, and Jordan was seen at numerous casinos. Dude, if you gamble at casinos... You're surely gambling on the game that you're playing in, aren't you? I would think. From what I understand, gambling is a disease. I'm not a gambler. I don't know. So this is one of the ugliest stories I've ever seen in sports on teammates. It's so important. This is why I always tell you about Tom Brady being the greatest teammate of all time. You see this right here? This is ego-driven between Pippen and Jordan. Jordan wanted to tell you the story. And by the way, for all intent purposes, that documentary, the last dance, I subscribed to everything. I watched it. I covered it. I was going through it. You know, I had just gotten into the business then. And I was watching this as we were doing this. And I, I don't think that anything in that documentary was wrong on how people perceive Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson for that matter. So there were a lot of truths that it, Aim more towards Michael Jordan? Well, it was his documentary. Why wouldn't it? Scotty didn't like it. So now we have a grudge book coming out. This is going to turn into one of the ugliest divorces we've ever seen in sports. You're calling Phil Jackson a guy with 11 championship rings a racist. You're calling Michael Jordan a selfish you-know-what and he never had anything for his teammates. And he's basically what Pippin's calling him a bad teammate. Look at what ego can do to friendships, to a journey that those guys went on. They have now destroyed that journey in the very end. How many years removed also? Those wounds don't seem like they happened yesterday, right? Those wounds happened over twenty some years ago, but they have made it seem like they happened yesterday. It shows you when you have a grudge towards somebody, how much you can keep those things, and what egos do to people. Again, back to Brady on this. This is what makes Tom Brady one of the absolute greatest teammates of all time. Go go around the league. Even in the summertime, Russell Wilson was kicking his offensive lineman in the head. I'm tired of getting sacked. I'm tired of getting hit. I'm tired of all the things that are going on with the fact that we're just ripping an offensive part. We're not getting anything together here, and I need more help. What did they do in the offseason? The Seahawks hurt him. They did all that, but still, Russell Wilson kind of kicked his old lineman in the head. Now they're playing good and Everything is all good now in those mini camps. I'm sure everything will be all great in the training camps because you know why Russell Wilson has built that equity up inside that locker room? Because Russell Wilson comes off to me, and I'm talking from an outsider here, like he's a pretty damn good teammate. Brady comes off like the greatest teammate that's ever lived. Give me the phone numbers to everybody on the team. Even the 53rd guy on the team. I want to know who these guys are. Because when Brady's hollering at you, He wants you to know that it comes from a place of friendship. If I don't know you from a can of paint and I just start hollering at you, then it comes from a place of destruction. You know, I've I've said this comment to people before, and I'll say it again to you. I learned this lesson from Joe Madden when I was covering the Tampa Bay Rays, and I asked Joe Madden, Joe, how do you connect with all your guys in the locker room? Joe's one of the greatest managers I've ever been around. He goes, it's simple. My 24, 25 guys that I have on the pine with me, I have a personal relationship with each and every single one of them so that when I need to be constructive, they'll know that I'm coming from a place of love that I want to see these guys succeed. Because then it comes off like a a, a sign of destruction. And that's how Madden manages. That's why when Joe Madden gives you 140 different lineup changes, each and every single year, and you're like, this guy changes his lineup card, those players on the bench know where Joe's coming from. I need this guy because this is a better matchup for us in this series versus the Mets or what have you. And it's nothing personal. That's how Joe Madden manages. Getting to know these guys and having personal relationships, it's such a great gift if you can pull it off. Not everybody can pull it off. That's why when you're a coach and you draft guys, you're drafting guys because you have a feel for these dudes. That's why coaches don't like to get rid of veteran guys. Coaches don't like to do that because they see something in you that reminds them of them, and they like you in their locker room. Same thing when you're hiring an assistant coach. All comes down to that all comes down to that. So I was watching how Pippen was on the Dan Patrick show, and I'm thinking, what a horrible teammate. No wonder they had to baby the guy. No wonder they had to kiss his ass to make him feel – Scottie Pippen was really the drama queen on that basketball team. And nobody wants to deal with that when you're in a journey like that. Nobody wants to go through that. Nobody has, you you know, the worst person to work for is somebody that shows up to work with a different mentality every day, isn't he? Or she, right? When you walk into work, one day they're happy, the next day they're miserable, the next day they're kind of good, the next day they're depressed. God, I hate that person. I just totally hate that guy because I'm not your psychiatrist. We're, We're here to win. We're here to put a journey together to try to make history. All right, speaking of making history, one of my favorite people on the planet, the legendary George Foreman. We got the Olympic Games coming up this summer. And as I've told you before, rappers, boxers, UFC, and football people, maybe Mark Cuban, will probably be the only people that you ever see on the national football show. The two-time heavyweight champion of the world, We're going to get his thoughts on an array of things. Protesting this summer in Tokyo, should they be? We'll talk to Big George Foreman. We'll do that next. You keep it here on the National Football Show.
0: I get scared sometimes.
2: Of a lot of things.
0: Joining in.
2: Decisions.
0: The dark. The dark. But I once heard someone say.
2: But as I always say. it's the door to a world most people only dream of. There's strong, and then there's Army strong. Try it on at GoArmy.com.
1: Back to the National Football Show, Dan One of my favorite Americans of all time is the story of George Foreman. I'm not sure if any of you have seen the Showtime documentary on George Foreman. It's called Foreman. And I watch it from time to time at least twice a year. And it's one of my favorite stories because it's a story of a young man from Houston that was dirt poor. And George Foreman was given an opportunity because of what this country provided. George was a troubled youth, but he would take his background and he would achieve some of the greatest achievements of all time. And he would go on to win the Olympic gold medal. He would go on to win the heavyweight championship two times in a row, or two times, I should say. Fighting some of the greatest fighters in the history of the division. Got to remember something. Back when Foreman was fighting for the heavyweight championship belt, you had Ali, you had Frazier, you had Foreman in the fight game. You had Holmes. You had all these legendary fighters who put up iconic fights. You don't see that any longer in the division. The division hasn't been really popular probably since Tyson was in the division. Or... When George made his comeback and people started taking it serious. But you just go and you follow the story of Foreman. And then, of course, the hamburger grill that turned out to be a monster success in America. I think George sold the thing for $250 million a couple of years back. It's just one of the greatest success stories of all time. Limited education when it came to high school would be in the White House With Lyndon Johnson after he won his gold medal in Mexico City. One of the most turbulent games, also, when it came to social justice of all time. And I bring in my friend, the two time heavyweight champion of the world. And as I was preparing for this, I've got to show George Foreman this. I was there the night when George Foreman knocked out Michael Mora. Here is my press pass, George. I was sitting ringside. And I'm watching as this fight's going on, folks, and I always learned one lesson from George Foreman. He always used to tell me this, Dan, I'm not trying to win a round. I'm trying to win the fight.
0: <laughs>
1: and I'll never forget when George, hit, when George hit Mora, he goes down. I said, oh, my God, he's done it. George, that night beating Michael Mora or the night that you beat Frazier – what was the more significant night for you?
6: You know they they were equal in value. I gotta put it, be honest with you. Uh, with the Frazier fight, it was an impossibility. I thought, man, heavyweight champ of the world beating Joe Frazier, impossible. But with Michael Moore, I had expectations, big expectations. So I think the Frazier may have been tougher.
1: You know what I would say this to you too, George. I'll never forget sitting okay, there.
6: And I'm go- more
1: joy, more joy
6: with the Fraser fight when you think about it. I was a kid okay. too.
1: I, I, I would say this to you too, George. That you know when I watched it that night, I I, I, I am I wrong when I say that the shorts and the and the boxer shorts that you were wearing that night were those the same shorts that you lost in Zaire wearing.
6: <laughs> I've heard that on several occasions, and I'm going to say I had so many, I wouldn't even know if they were. <laughs> George, uh, what's the – I would what's walk the... around after winning the title. I walked around with world heavyweight champion on, on all my trunks, and so I had so many of them.
1: Okay. George, what was the more significant achievement for you, the Olympic gold medal or winning those heavyweight championships?
6: Oh, nothing will ever come close to that moment in the Olympics. You talk about impossible. Just a short time earlier, I'm running down the streets of Houston, Texas, running from the police, a mugger on the street. And then next thing you know, you're standing up, listening to your national anthem in the background a gold medal on your neck. Now, impossible. Talk about impossible. Oh, nothing will come close to that. Nothing in sports ever.
1: George, for you, um, during that 68 Olympics, did you know the turmoil that was going on with Carlos and Smith and when you decided to get the American flag and walk around the ring, was that in protest to what those guys were doing or was that just something subconsciously that you wanted everyone to know what America had afforded you? What, What did that moment mean when you were walking around the ring with that American flag? You talk about the
6: perfect
1: we our
6: food, our camaraderie, our brotherhood, friendship. It was the best Olympics I've ever seen. It was friends and neighbors. Close with those joyous John Carlos. He was the happiest guy. You'd like to see him out on the field relaxing and break records. Tommy Smith, as always. So we didn't know anything like that was coming, nor did we know how to expect and react for it. Once they made that demonstration, it broke our hearts to see them kicked off the team, though. That was a heartbreaker. Carlos, they had been running for years to get to the Olympics and then told to get out. Now, that hurt every athlete from the Olympic uh, American team. When I won my gold medal, I just won it because we didn't see any separation in people. You were the only thing that separated us were the colors we wore red, white, and blue, or whatever. So, when I won my gold medal, I wanted the world to see, Look, look, I'm an American. I didn't think anything, any other thing about it. And that's all it meant. It wasn't protest, anti protest, pure happiness.
1: You know, George, you took heat for that though, didn't you? After I I would imagine you're just looking for your moment when you won the heavyweight gold medal. And you all of a sudden you're taking criticism because two other athletes decided to do something on their own time and their moment. Um, I, I never thought that that was fair. How did you look at that when you took some of the criticism back then?
6: Oh, just think about it. Every little boy, no matter where you are, uh, every girl, watch television, watch movies every day and once and, and, and wish you are going to be popular, hope you're going to be popular and your name is going to be used. But everyone beware, once your name is used, once your name is in public, everything's going to be said good and bad about you. So live with it. Uh, from the Job Corps days, I understood that one day nobody knew me. And a lot of people afterwards knew me for various reasons and liked me. And they never met me or disliked me and never met me. I, it didn't bother me. I wanted to be a boxer. First time, you know, uh, about waving the flag, I didn't like people bothering me about that because what else did I have but the United States, uh, the flag of the United States of America. That's all I had. That's all I will ever have is for the country and, and natural things. Of course, now I'm gifted with knowledge of God. That helps a lot. But as far as things, if you're not if you're not. You don't, you're not a patriotic to your country. You don't have anything. Where do you live? In the bush? No. The flag was something. So that, uh, To this day, if I had it to do all over again uh, after the Olympics, I would have waved two flags. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
6: George, I, I love let me ask
1: you this then, George. Are you okay with the athletes protesting in the upcoming Tokyo games?
6: Uh, look, if you're going to be, uh, like 60, I guess about 15, 16, 17, all the way to, you know, 21, if you don't have any protest in you, you're not really a youth at all. If kids are going to protest that you change a lot of things in the world. When you make a stand on something, you change and make people look, and it's going to be very few youngsters to resist the temptation of seeing that camera and not do something they think is Protest! It's going to be hard. But it's only because they're young. It give, give me a chance to be like, I don't know, 17 years old. I'll probably do something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, George, were you prepared for the success after the Olympics once you came home? Because like you said, all of a sudden you're the kid in the streets of Houston, and all of a sudden now you're in the White House talking to Lyndon Johnson. Were you ready for it?
6: Uh, what I call ready for it, I sit down at uh, the White House. I was invited a second time to the White House to one of the state uh, state dinner. And they sent me, I had, a, had to have a tuxedo on and all these dignitaries from around the world. And there was knives and forks on both sides of my plate. I didn't know which one to eat with what. Was <laughs> I prepared? No, not for that table said <laughs> all of these forks and spoons. I just didn't know what to do. That was that was now that was complicated. That was all the complication complication I saw. Nothing else was complicated. Two George, you'll left. have
1: you'll you'll have to excuse me, George, because the George Foreman that I watched when I was a young kid was the guy that I loved, that younger George Foreman that just was going to just pound everyone into submission. And I don't know, maybe I always have a fondness for guys like Liston and people like that because they came from a hard upbringing. And I was just – I was wondering, you go from that really proud kid to being that destructive force in the heavyweight division. What was the transformation in George Foreman 1 when you started fighting guys like Frazier and you eventually would fight Ali? What was the transformation from that gold medal, George, to the heavyweight first time around, George Foreman?
6: Boy, you know, I, when I get in the ring with, in the Olympics, I always hit and swing hard as I can, but it was all about I uh, hope I knock this guy down. Then I got to be a professional. These guys didn't respect me. They thought I was just some some guy they were trying to – some Olympic champion they were trying to build. They would charge me. And I'd hit them and knock them down, knock them down. Finally, i realized it's not just happening. I am a puncher. And before you know it, I had, what, thir- almost 37 uh, knockouts, uh, missing two to become heavyweight champion of the world. I thought I could knock anyone out, and I knew how to do it. And all I thought about days before the fight, where I'm going to hit a guy. And if he covers up this place, I'm going to hit him in another spot. I even I, I figured I could hit anyone anywhere and knock them out, and then of course I left boxing and came back. I had to learn the sport all over again.
1: George, talk to me about going into the ring with Frazier. Here's a guy that had beaten Ali in what was celebrated. And God, you got to go back and think about this. These two fighters got five million dollars in 1970. My God Almighty, what would that fight be worth today? Frazier Ali won. And you destroyed Joe Frazier. I mean, I'll never forget the sounds of Cosell. It's one of my favorite calls in sports history. When you walked into the ring and you knocked him down for the first time, I, I, it must have been a, oh, my God, or what was that feeling when you realized you were going to become the heavyweight champion of the world?
6: Oh, boy, had come into my camp, the great light heavyweight champion of the world and he had me like a robot. I was practicing every day, doing those combinations, moving around in different positions. I was in probably the best condition I'd ever been in my life. So when Frazier kept doing those things, there were all things like that. I saw it all happen like a, it's like, is this really happening to me? And once the fight was over, they crowned me champ of the world. The most mysterious thing happened. I felt like Jack Dempsey, Jack Johnson, John L. Sullivan. It's like these guys came alive in me for a second. You actually feel heavyweight champion of the world. That blew me away and gave me like extra confidence and at one point even a little overconfidence.
1: George, let me ask you the most difficult loss in your career, the Ali fight or the Jimmy Young fight?
6: Boy, you know what was difficult? There was a guy uh, by the name of uh, 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 Clay Hodges in the amateurs. And I only fought a good year in the amateurs, 25 fights total. I lost to him once in Oakland, California on points. And then later on, for one of the Golden Glove tournaments, I lost again. And I thought, I don't have any hopes. I just cannot beat Clay Hodges. I can't beat him. I don't think I have much of a career. But when it came time for the big tournament where we would meet again, Clay Hodges lost to a lesser guy somewhere else. From that point on, I knew about losing. I was prepared to win, and I knew about losing. But I forgot about that until I fought Muhammad Ali, and that was a reminder of Clay Hodges. It put me – you know, I went down. I was depressed. You lose something special like the heavyweight title. I was down for a little bit, but then the Jimmy Young – thing happened not only did i lose but i won the greatest prize of all knowledge that there was truly a living god because of the experience in the dressing room so you know the the, the losses i just put them in perspective if you know what i mean i forgot that you win and lose when i lost to muhammad but i put it back together and with jimmy young i found religion
1: are, were you disappointed that there was never an Ali Foreman 2?
6: Uh, you know, I wanted the title back, but, hey, you you know, I beat Muhammad. A lot of people talk about he won in the rope-a-dope and everything, but he beat me because he he was jumping off the ropes trying to get away from me, and he turned back and hit me with a, the most explosive combination. One, two the right hand that stung me, and it wasn't a bee, more like stinging like an elephant. (laughs) That was was on the canvas, you know, uh, trying to get it together. So that guy, it's not like you go to bed every day and say, I want some more of that. Please, may I have some more of that? I'm heartbreaking because I didn't get some more of that. No, (laughs) I wasn't heartbroken because I didn't get that second chance, no way. I probably I didn't want any more of him any more than he wanted in some more of me.
1: George, then you take that respite and you find God and you become a preacher and this transformation happens uh, to you and you become an evangelist and you have God in your heart. And just like Ali to the last breath, you know, he was a Muslim, got down on his hands and knees every day and thank God for the things that he had in his life. And there was a transformation again for George Foreman, the Olympic George Foreman, the first Foreman. Now there's another Foreman and you decide to come back. You know, I've watched the Showtime special where you're almost penniless and you decide to come back because you have to come back. And you, But it's a different Foreman. What was different about the George Foreman the second time when you made your comeback than when you fought the first time?
6: Most importantly, the second George Foreman came to work. I had to get a job. I have all these kids. You heard the story. I have all these sons named George and daughters. Well, they have to eat. I, 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 I. <laughs> <laughs> I had to come back to work and feed my family. And I had nothing more. Boxing had become a profession to me. And I call it an honorable, honorable profession. I think it's the uh, grandfather of all sports even a ping pong. People say, well, how can you be a boxer? Look, if you can play ping pong, you can box. It's all about winning and feeding your family. That's all it was about. The first time around, I had, but I didn't want to hurt anybody. There was never a punch thrown in anger the second time around.
1: I'll tell you, George, the, the, the second George Foreman, it just seemed, and I had talked to Angelo Dundee about you, and he said, that second George Foreman I'm telling you, it would have been a different fight in Zaire if he had the knowledge of the George Foreman II and he had put that in that young kid. Do you agree with what Angelo told me, that it may have been a different outcome and it may have been a whole different career if George Foreman, with the knowledge, had that knowledge when he was younger?
6: Well, that, that I take that as the, the ultimate uh, compliment. Angelo Dundee... He looks at things, and most importantly, he was honest. He tell you something, it wouldn't be a whole lot, but it was his honest opinion about things. And for him to say that uh, make makes me feel really good, but uh, you, li- we live and you learn. That's all I can say. I learned a lot of the years gone by. I was tough, good heavyweight champion in, in the younger George, but I came back with the, uh, you know, the thing is I don't want to hurt anybody. I just want to make a living. And I love that guy.
1: George, I'll tell you this. I, I've said this to you before, too, that, you know, you come back and you win the heavyweight championship of the world and you're there at, um, you know, the MGM Grand and you got on your hands and knees. I, I, I've never asked you the question, what did you say? What were you praying to when you got to your hands? People were bombarding you. We all. I jumped into the ring. We're all jumping in the ring. I had never George, and I'll tell people this right now, listening to us. I have never heard a louder explosion in my life than when Mora hit the deck. And there, you looked up. You went, I, 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 I could see you going, "Oh my god!" And it was almost like you were shocked yourself that you had knocked him out. You go over to the corner. Just what was that brief moment? And then, you know, you had Bob Arum come over, put his arm around you. It was such a great moment.
6: You know, it's strange. I'd I'd come back to boxing and uh, a lot of years now started, came back in 87. And this is, remember, 94. And you see athletes today looking up, uh, making pointed up to the sky, praying or something. I never did any of those things. I'm a preacher by profession. I go to church and uh, that's where I preach. But I never did any kind of demonstration in the ring about religion or anything but that day that morning before I had to uh, go went to the arena I said god I never say anything I never open my mouth nor do I after the fight say give the honor to I never say anything I said but if I win this fight <laughs> I'm going to get on my knees right there in the corner and say thank you Jesus for what you've done for me and I said that's the only thing so Michael Moore goes down, and I hear the referee counting. It gets, and I look over, I realize he's not getting up. I just kind of looked to heaven and got on my knees, and I did that. <laughs> Bob Aaron ran over. he couldn't believe it. He said, Praise the Lord, George! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I said, yeah, praise the Lord! And that's we've never been out of uniform like that before.
1: George, finally here. Um, you know, I've seen Tyson get in the ring with Roy Jones. I don't know, man. I mean, I, hey, I, I tell everybody, you know, I, I don't know, man. Old George still got that punch. I know that, you know, people may think that you're a little old here, George, but these guys are doing these exhibition fights. You ever think about maybe jumping back in there and putting the tights, the, the shorts on again?
6: You know, I haven't given that much thought. Uh, you know, all, I'm already in, in, in uh, being looked at strangely. I got all these kids, about 14 grandkids. <laughs> And it's a wonder they still let me have my car keys. <laughs> I going out like I'm i going back into boxing. Next thing you know, man, uh, they might take the door keys away from me and lock me up. So I better stay put.
1: Hey, George, it's been really great catching up with you. You always find time for me. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, it's a real honor to have you on the show. Thank you, George. And thank you back. You bet. George Foreman, the legendary two-time heavyweight champion of the world. We'll take a brief time out. You keep it here on the National Football Show.
0: I get scared sometimes.
2: Of a lot of things.
0: Joining in.
2: Decisions. The dark. The dark.
0: But I once heard someone say.
2: But as I always say.
0: It's okay to be afraid.
2: As long
3: as you face the fear
5: Pure Bull Beef Jerky is our answer, and soon it will be yours. Locally produced in the Philadelphia region, this high quality, healthy protein snack is easy to secure. Go to steersnacks.com, and you'll see hot garlic, tropical heat, pure bull dry rub, and our favorite, Huckenfot. What's that? Huckenfot. Go now to
3: steersnacks.com. Welcome to the Wildwoods, the perfect place where you can safely do everything or nothing at all.
2: It's the door to a world most people only dream of.
1: There's strong, and then there's army strong. Try it on at GoArmy.com.